I hate you, Craig. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> who who chose that voice for him? Oh my god. I, for it. It it's 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 uh it's easy to imagine that Craig is probably like a um like a skeleton of like a real man that yeah. they put they put recording in uh technology inside of and they're like yeah. the fact that it's humanoid will make people feel less frightened by it and someone's like is that a real skeleton that you got from a graveyard and they're like <laughs> well i needed to make sure that it had a strong human appearance and i figured I think... there's there's no better way to achieve this <laughs> yeah i i think for me it, it gives more the vibe of someone in a time person like beyond the heat death of the universe i can see just, that they're just trapped there and their voice is being transmitted back to our times that that's the vibe i got from him i i can strongly appreciate this understanding of craig especially because it fits with the common understanding of him which is uh, a sense of deep malevolence and yeah. uh, a will from beyond. Exactly. He has he has that air about him of like a lich or a powerful wizard or something like that. There's something uh, hateful about his existence. Yeah, it's but like it's not, if lo- he he doesn't hate us specifically because that would imply that beings of our level are like um, equivalent to him, and he is so much far beyond his malevolence is for creation itself. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad we ironed out this um, metaphysical relationship we have with Craig. Uh, what's, what's great, and will probably not surprise you, is literally every person who has ever heard Craig's <laughs> voice all lands exactly on the same spot, like intuitively. You hear yeah. it, and you're like, no, no, that thing's going to take my skin. I've seen Terminator. <laughs> yep. It, it, it's really unambiguous. There's no, there's no two ways to read his tone. You're like this. Uh, this ignites uh, an animal fear in me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a gut, it's a gut thing, right? It's not. It doesn't go for the brain. Uh, welcome to Death Sentence, everybody. Um, we, uh, no one at home can hear uh, the Craig voice, and I'm not sure we've ever played it for you. Uh, and that's ultimately for the best. Um, it will haunt your dreams. Yeah. It will uh, uh, erode your days. You'll find yourself quickly incapable of love, incapable mm-hmm. of hope, incapable of desire. When I go to sleep and I close my eyes, I hear that voice coming up the stairs. It's, um, it's a cold comfort knowing that now I am part of this company. Of yeah. individuals haunted by by Craig. Yeah, it's like it's like when you join a cult and they uh, they take you to a, a back room hidden behind a bookshelf, and uh, you see uh, a velvet uh, curtain hanging across a wall that can't certainly cannot uh, be on the outer the outer wall of of the building, and uh, they make you stare at it as yeah. they pull back the curtain and reveal to you a wretched painting. Of, of something from beyond. I, I have seen that curtain. I have mm-hmm. gazed on its velvety embrace. And I, I have not been the same since. So uh, obviously this is the first episode in a while. And while most... Uh, I'm not 
sure actually if most people will know why we went on hiatus. Anyway, I'm going to explain it so it doesn't matter. Um, you're all going to know. <laughs> anyone who listens to this will know at least. Um, so obviously, anyone at home is is probably going to be noting that Gareth isn't on the episode. And Gareth didn't do the intro, who nor- and he normally does, and all that kind of stuff. And that is because, unfortunately, Gareth needed to step away from the podcast for the foreseeable future. This is something that he'd mentioned to me actually a while ago is maybe in the middle of last year that he was like some life changes are coming down the pipeline for me and I want you to be prepared if I need to step away and so we talked about you know would I be willing to take over the answer is yes and you know would I know how to do everything the answer is no I'm I'm comically inept (laughs) there was a a non-zero amount of this was me learning how to do things like audio editing or book people. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, you'd be surprised how much of this was, uh, well, actually maybe you wouldn't be surprised because this podcast initially was Gareth's baby. Like it, it was a solo run podcast for the first, like several episodes, I think like a dozen or two dozen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously he learned how to do all, how to work all the tech for it. He learned how to do all the booking. He learned how to do all the promotion, how to, and inevitably, like when I came on, I initially, uh, this is also a funny thing that's come up before. Um, I don't really listen to podcasts, um, <laughs> uh, including now. Like, so like it initially was just like I was mouthing off on Twitter about how I think podcasts are whack and I'd rather read a book. And someone was like, hey, you like death metal and books. Uh, you should check this out. Um and it was it was a link it was a link to this uh, to to death <laughs> sentence, um, and I was like, "That's great! I won't because I don't like podcasts." And they were like, "Cool!" Um, and then uh, I this was would have been 2017 now, I think, um, but like tail end of 2017 maybe. But mm-hmm. um, there is uh, an Italian horror author, um, an Italian anti-fascist horror author. Uh, let me find his name real quick. I can't remember it because uh, despite being part Italian, I refuse to let Italian into my brain. It's simply not going to go in there. Mm-mm. Is, this, <laughs> um, is this the Maria that you're referencing? Yeah. Yeah. The guy who wrote uh, 20 Days of Turin. Yeah. It was, so it was specifically that um, 20 Days of Turin, which is very well regarded in Europe and in other parts of the world had never gotten an English translation. And it was like yeah. one of the only books of his that didn't, despite him mm-hmm. being like, like, obviously I assume, you know who he is. Cause he's like, he's, he's a well-regarded writer. Um, and, yeah. uh, the big, so it, uh, an English translation was solicited and produced and then released at the tail end of 2017. Um, and I just happened to pick it up because I was like, oh, shit, I love this guy. And I legit didn't know this book existed because there was no English translation. Um, and Gareth had just announced that that was the book he was looking to do the next episode on, um, unbeknownst to me. And so then we got put uh, we got put in contact and I got brought on and there was uh We've told the story before, but um, we actually had technical failures the first two times we <laughs> recorded that episode. So we did like a full hour to an hour and a half recording session 
two oh, no. times, none oh, of which God. was usable. <laughs> that is the worst. What a nightmare. So then we had to do it a third time. And by the end of the third time, we built up a really good rapport. Yeah. So, um, and I happened to catch offhandedly in the back of the book um, that it was solicited by Will Meneker of uh, Chapo Trap House um, mm. because his parents work in publishing. Um, he's mentioned that a couple times. And he apparently, like, I'm not sure if he still does that as a day job or if he just sort of moonlights every now and again. But um, he quietly puts money in it and was like, hey, I have this position now and I have, you know, the resources from Chapo. So, like, why don't I solicit uh, the first English translation of this very well-regarded anti-fascist horror novel? Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it's weird that they're not more vocal about things like that. I mean, I think in the long run, it's good because it means that this stuff is sincere. They're like, you know, we just want to put, you know, the stuff out into the world, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still not, I'm not the biggest, again, I don't listen to podcasts and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a, a boring theory reading lefty that I don't, I don't need Chapo. I've got, I got my, I got my boring theory books. <laughs> <laughs> why, li- why listen to podcasts when you can be boring? Right? Like, I ordered uh, a new translation of nonlinear, uh, A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History by Manuel Delanda because, yeah. again, a boring piece of shit. Love that <laughs> shit. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make my partner just insane when I'm rambling about uh, his insane post-structuralist uh, uh, communism. You can't really read Delanda without making someone in your life insane about it. Otherwise, you haven't really read him, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like how I have to force in a, a reference to Deleuze uh, uh, in every single episode of Death Sentence because um, yeah. that's my burden and now it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone who's read Deleuze all is in that same camp. We have to. Contractually um, obligated. Yeah. Uh, but it, has to, it has to be like, don't explain it, right? It has to be oh, obtuse. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not Deleuze, right? Yeah. It's like the whole. The whole vibe of it is uh, you're, you're, you're just you're just vibing. It's just the is just what happens when you're really smart and you're just vibing. You just sounds chilling. like sounds like is did 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 any of that just make sense? Did anything that Deleuze just said make it's like that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Doesn't he's matter. vibing. He's chilling. You're just on you're just on the plateau, kind of chilling. Right. He's vibing looking, with the boys. Looking at the other nine hundred and ninety nine plateaus, and you just chill. It's really funny having read like Difference and Repetition, which is this incredibly rigorous um, and like very disciplined uh, philosophy text, which like I think you actually could understand if you've read other philosophy. Uh, I'm smirking <laughs> right now because uh, and anyone yeah. who's read to lose knows what comes next. You then read literally anything else he's written and you're like, what the fuck happened to this man? <laughs> like, yeah. What happened to his brain? Did something like just break down in his like causation engine or whatever? Did he just like start right. to ramble um, and he, write it down as he was going along? Which he went. He basically went full, what happened. He went full lines of flight. I mean, he's he's talking <laughs> about lines of flight in there, and and he's he's doing it. Like totally. you're like, I have no fucking idea where this man's going. I think maybe it's correct. I can't. I cannot tell. But you know, he is certainly vibing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned in, in the podcast, like, oh, this is actually, you know, solicited by Will Meneker and it's mentioned in the back and I double checked and it's, it's 
the same one. Uh, and Gareth threw that in as like a, a tag and uh, the Chapo guys retweeted it. Um, ah. And that gave like, so my very first episode on the podcast gave it this massive <laughs> boost in numbers and we built this rapport. So he was like, Langdon, do you, and it's a couple of weeks later. He's like, Langdon, do you want to like, maybe like become the co-host? And I was like, I don't listen to podcasts. Yes, this will be so funny. (laughs) I'm going to get to be able to tell my friends that I'm the co-host of something in a media format that I do not listen to. Um, I've, I've since obviously started listening to some partly for professional reasons and partly because I, you know, you find some that are like, okay, that, that, that sounds maybe interesting, but I don't know. I I hear about like night veil or something. I'm like, that sounds terrible. (laughs) I, 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 I found Night Vale when I was working night shifts, and yeah. that's honestly one of the main reasons it just worked for me. I can follow that. Yeah, that, that, that was the vibe that I needed to get me through those nights. It's, it's funny because like, I've, um, I, like a lot of people that I know and respect like it, or at least like chunks of it. From what I've heard, it kind of, same with any like long-running serialized project that can go off the rails or lose that initiating fire. But th- that yeah. happens that you like, there's, you, there's nothing wrong with that happening. It sucks, but that happens eventually to any long-running project. The yep. Simpsons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really, it's really a shame that Matt Groening uh, died tragically in an accident after uh, the first ten seasons. It's terrible. Yeah, terrible. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. So this is sort of like always in the back pocket of Gareth being like, "Hey, you know, I'm running into as I, I, I don't want to get into it because it's it's his own life stuff." But basically, just I mean. You can you can put two and two together. We're in quarantine conditions. It's been hard on everybody. Um, like he has a kid, so he has responsibilities beyond just a podcasting you know, his you know family stuff and you know looking after his son and stuff like that. Which mm-hmm. you add COVID slash quarantine um, like difficulties when it comes to, and. Uh, all of a sudden it's like, I can keep doing the podcast, but I will grow resentful of it. And then it will become this tedious chore that I loathe, or I can step away now. And if we mentioned before, like, obviously this is his baby that I've inherited. So the door is open for him if if he ever wants to come back, but he was just like, I'm going to go pursue some other stuff. He's, he's been doing an awesome job with freelance writing, which he actually started up. Um, maybe about a year ago. Uh, so you can, you can catch him on all sorts of places. Um, like he recently had some stuff published through Mel, um, which is great. The, uh, I love Mel. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm always surprised that when you read the pitch, it's a men's magazine, but leftist and good. I'm like, that's, there's no way that's correct. There's no way that's accurate. And then it is. And I'm yeah. like, love to eat crow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you can. Um, I'll I'll provide a link to um, to Gareth's Twitter in the in the description for this, so that anyone you know can continue to follow him and follow his writing. Um, but he's at Gareth L Watkins one, uh, like the numeral. And again, that'll be in this the description. But so uh, yeah, then. Uh, uh, I guess to to catch everyone up to speed, at least for me, uh, during the hiatus, I uh, 
uh, was completely out of work for a while, as you know, uh, honestly, we should still be. But uh, I live in America, and that's a bad country uh, run by a fascist. So, um, which, which, uh, our, our, uh, our guest right here, Eden, will uh, will will know quite well the notion oh, yeah. of living in a bad country run by a fascist. Yeah, uh, it's uh, uh, it's been bad. Um, I've uh, read a lot to cope with the uh, insane trauma of uh, you know uh, all of it. I feel at this point there's almost no point catching up on uh. The Black Lives Matter protests, which are fantastic, and seeing the amount of fire from vectors that I never would have thought would would even be interested has has been really energizing. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I'm not I'm not a dipshit, so I look at certain things and be like, this is a capitalist trying or a liberal trying to capitalize on a radical social movement. But yeah. sadly, um, and this is something we, we've, we've talked about before. We as leftists sort of need to be aware that that can be a useful tool. Because if we delude ourselves into thinking that, at least in the near future, there's going to be a point where leftists make a quorum of the social structure, uh, yeah. especially in something like America, we aren't going to be able to get anything done. At a certain point, we brought this up before, at a certain point, a fundamental element of leftism is coalition building. And making a coalition with liberals and capitalists doesn't mean we need to co-sign their ideas. It does mean that, like we've been seeing, we need to strong arm them into parroting our message like, and enforcing it. It's like, yep. I don't have to like you, but if you're willing to put people that I think are a piece of shit into a headlock for me, fuck it. I'll take it. Yeah. I think it's also it also speaks to the idea of, you know, the idea of like... Um, millennial not in the sense of the generation but in the sense of you know the 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 millenarian the, the millenarian exactly like the the end of days right yeah so the idea of like a millenarial revolution where it's just almost like a religious event that sweeps through the planet and everyone has a turn of heart to use a christian term and suddenly becomes a leftist that is that is a liberal idea right that's not how movements work it's not just one day that this wave just sweeps everyone off their feet there's a lot of really dirty and unpleasant work on the way there. And part of it is working with people you disagree with, because that's how you make them, at least some of them, people who you agree with, right? Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately, I, I, I've told this story before, ultimately, that's what eventually happened with me, or I was very much a cishet white teen boy in America with, you know, making crass jokes that I am not proud of. Um, and then, yeah, at some point, enough people banged me in the side of the head with some of this shit that it started to click. And I was like, Oh, yeah. I need to, you know, and yeah, which, that which is the most important point is that the, the actions that derive from that idea is not water down your idea. So they become more palatable to liberals, but the opposite, make them stronger yeah. and more outspoken so that you become almost like a beacon that those people can gravitate towards. So be be more of a leftist. That's how you convince people who are not leftists to become leftists. Like I remember the first time that I ran into a uh, so um, uh, a close friend of mine um, who I went to high school with. Um, his uh, he had a, a difficult family situation, as 
most most people will have a difficult family situation. Like the specifics change family to family, but there's very rarely someone who has like, you know, my family was just super perfect all the time. That's because it's not realistic. Um, uh, but his brother got really good grades in high school. And eventually because of that was able to work some certain stuff and went off to an out of state private college. And in America, um, college when you're in state and it's a public university will still bleed you dry. So you add out of state tuition and the increased tuition costs of a private college. It was yeah. deep into six figures a year. Um, and his brother went there for all of undergrad, uh, and got a degree in Arthurian legends, um, which, <laughs> yep. Um, now it, it's worth noting for anyone at home that Eden also has a background in like academic space, at least, um, just like I did, er, I do, just like Gareth does. Um, so that laugh is a very specific knowing laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, like to gird at home, it's not, it's not to say that the usage of college to expand knowledge for knowledge's own sake is a bad thing. That is literally the ideal of it, because so long as you're being confronted with true information, there is there there's growth potential there and also there's you know, quality of life all the normal stuff that you'd expect to hear but in the highly capitalized uh sociopathic society of america spending goddamn near like half a million dollars to get a degree in arthurian legends is unwise um <laughs> just yeah <laughs> just to I mean, make it uh, very simple i don't well so I'm, as you said, also from a bad country, capital B. Um, mm -hmm. I'm from Israel, for those who aren't aware of who I am, which why would you be? Um, and here the education situation is better than the States because, well, is it not better than in the States? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I also have a, I have a BA in history and philosophy and my specialty in history, which is what I majored in, is... Um, 17th century unrest and revolution so that's also completely useless from <laughs> a, cap a capitalist perspective um not to say that it's useless to me it is not it's it's incredibly first of all it was interesting it also taught me so many skills that are crucial for my day to day but um yeah it's not exactly something that society signals to you as something important right or worthwhile even yeah, like I got a degree in literature, philosophy, and uh, creative writing. And you'd think that within there, especially if you're like doing what I was doing, which is applying for like admin assistant jobs or um, like copywriting positions. You're like, hey, I, no, they don't give a shit. They're like, oh, you didn't yeah. get an advertising degree. And I'm like, yeah, but I know how to write and your job is writing intensive. And they're like, yeah, I don't care though. Um, yeah. I mean, the job, the job of a degree is not to give you the skill set that the workplace actually needs. The job of the degree is to impart on you the signals, signs, and trappings of a trade. Yeah. I, it's to give your future boss the safety that if they use a certain term, which is exclusionary and elitist, you will be in on the joke. Um, and you'll be able to respond with the correct cosines. That that's all it is. I'd like. It's, li 
it's like on on one hand i actually have like a weird mild defense of some of the gatekeeping of academia obviously that's going to raise some some red flags for some so let, it, it, again it's very mild not- um the oh no I, I i don't mean this as like you saying that there there's no use oh for, yeah yeah, yeah um, sure uh but like there are certain times where people, especially specialized people within a field like um, philosophy, sociology, something like that, need to be able to have a space where they can test out an idea with other yeah. experts who know what they're talking about, mostly to see if it holds water so that you don't like fill social space with dumb bunk ass ideas. And then once they yeah. go, OK, that one makes an amount of sense. You hand it off to basically people who serve as a translational facility for like okay how do we make this communicable to, to other people but oh my god does academia overextend that oh my god <laughs> like, but i think it's actually interesting like the divide that people think um is in place between academia and society where academia is really jargon heavy and that's where you go if you want to use words that no one understands but that is also true about 95 percent of all trades and crafts in yeah the middle the higher middle class let's say right um so the academia is kind of like a place where i as if i'm a marketing manager thank god that i'm not but if i was i don't want to have to explain to someone what a branded seo campaign is and that's wizardry it's just a string of of words that have no real meaning unless you went and studied marketing right so what that degree tells me is that if I say branded SEO campaign, they'll answer with, well, which demographic are you targeting with your RMR budget? I, like they know the response to my sign. That's, that's what academia gives me as a capitalist um, or, as, or as like a middle management type of person within capitalism. It gives me the jargon and language of a guild, basically. Yeah, it's um, and then you add on top of that the absolutely fucking insane cult like um, very cliquish um, social environment that's driven more by not that there's something inherently wrong with social politics, because there isn't. That's the same mechanic that says abusers have to leave a space. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, it's. Th- this is sort of. Uh, a, a truth that you run into in philosophical space. There isn't a tool that is inherently politicized in one direction. A tool is merely a dead tool, and then it takes the shape of whoever is wielding it. And that's, yeah. there's there's no way to really to fix that. You're not going to make the perfect tool that can't be corrupted because it's, it's a tool. The same gun that fosters revolution is the same gun that shoots up a high school. One of those is good. One of those is horrific. And, you know, you, it's, the horrible burden of the world. Um, but you get in academic space a lot, the the bad kind of social politics where it's like, oh, you attended a gathering with this person. And you're like, well, I wasn't told who was on the list and they were on the other side of the room and I was there to talk to this guy. I didn't even, I don't even know who that person is now. And apparently I, and they're like, I can't publish your paper. You're like, what? Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, I have beef with him. Because he and I both went to this one other thing, you know, 12 years ago. And you're like, what, for real? Um, And it, you hear horror stories from people where they get sort of locked out of certain space or they have like weird maneuverings they have to take on a political, on a professional level in order to work around. um, 
I, I have a friend now who has a PhD in linguistics who dealt with at like a very major university, like one professor that they were working on co-authoring a paper with suddenly drop them out of the blue and take all their research on account of they had also co-published a paper with this other well-esteemed uh, person in the field. And they had like the kind of private beef where it's like you have to have lived in this city at within this yeah. narrow span of time and been in that social circle to even know the fallout took place. And they're like, well, I don't fuck with people who fuck with that person. It's like, how could she have possibly known that occurred? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then when it came time for my friend to, to go to college, his parents were like, well, you get C's in high school and your brother got A's. And we saw what your brother decided to do with his uh, good grade getting ass with getting this very expensive, functionally useless degree. Um, it's fascinating to talk with that guy because he can talk about you know, Arthurian legends and the literary uh, elements of them, like ad infinitum, and that's tight. But uh, he then eventually joined the Air Force to make a living. Um, so they temporarily didn't let my friend go to college whatsoever. They were like, mm -hmm. we're not going to pay for it. And this obviously broke his heart because like everyone else was going off to college. So he was basically stuck at home while his he got to watch his friends go live their lives. So he buckled down and bought a bunch of books about history and just and so like one day he was like hey i just read king leopold's ghost and i'm gonna force you to read it and i was like what and he hands it to me and i'm reading it and i'm like holy shit i never knew <laughs> like anyone yeah. who's read that book it's now like a seminal book on the topic of um dutch colonialism but yeah. like that was obviously you hear about it in school but um nowhere near that yeah. like nowhere near the the level of like pure villainy and then he was like oh here's a here's a really cheerful book called late victorian holocausts about the uh british colonialism in india and i'm reading it and i'm like holy fuck um yeah sort of to to at, as testament to your point of like you make new leftists through that stridency yeah um it it also helps to um and not naming any names, many leftists fail profoundly at this point. It helps to have people skills. <laughs> well, that's that's the joke about the <laughs> communist who hates people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, you have to make sure they don't hate you and dismiss everything you say off the cuff, you know, before you get into it. Otherwise, they're just going to be like, this fucking prick. <laughs> yep. Um, I mean, there's this idea on the left. It, it goes back to what you said about social politics, right? There's this idea that everybody approaches politics like Lenin did or Marx did from a very analytical and um, not objective, but like, like a third party, right? Where they see two parties interact and then they analyze the relationship. But yeah. even Marx and Lenin, the people and not the authors, were guided by stuff like dislikes and likes and people they wanted to hang out with and what kind of beer they liked and where they went to drink it and what music they liked and stuff like that and and a lot of leftists kind of like forget that and they think that if they just prove to the other side that they're correct like if they show them enough graphs about the declining rate of profit they'll suddenly be marxists and what the right understands 
is that politics is a fan club um, and it's a social function and it's a pastime. And it is this really important thing about how we run the world and literally decides <laughs> people's lives. But it, yeah. can, it, it can be that and it can be um, a social circle. So they kind of, they're better at not, not necessarily being likable, but creating themselves as people that other people want to hang out with. What was some, sometimes known as being cool. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's a cliche at this point saying what the left needs is to be cool. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's reductionist, but I do think we need to think again about how to make leftist politics about more than just um, theory and analysis and proving that we're right and more about, you know, community, doing things together, enjoying each other's company, um, feeling good about ourselves together, which is a huge part of it. Um, you know, it's not, I didn't invent that. That's, that's the Jacobin Club. That's how the Jacobin Club started. You think all those guys did, like Robespierre or whatever, they just sat around and talked politics? They did hella drugs. Um, yeah, that, they, that... <laughs> they got mad wasted. <laughs> they got super wasted. And then, you know, they fucking executed everyone and um, conquered Austria or whatever, or Northern Italy. But first, they did lots of drugs. And like, when you, <laughs> when you read like correspondence um, between like Robespierre and Danton, who became like rivals, spoilers for the French Revolution, um, <laughs> what, they say, I hate this guy. Like, forget all the politics. I just don't like him. Like, Robespierre thought that Danton was like an oaf and a fucking crude peasant. And Danton thought Robespierre was an asshole and an elitist. And they were both right. <laughs> they were like <laughs> terrible people. But they just disliked each other. Um, and they couldn't agree on anything be because, well, they agreed on some stuff. But mostly they just disliked each other. And then you have the counterexamples of revolutionists who genuinely loved the company of the other revolutionaries. Um, so I, I think that's a really important point that a lot of people, you know, they think it comes naturally. and It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, we even see this in, in a microscopic end within, like, within the world of metal, which has um, obviously been, uh, I would say rocked with uh allegations recently but it's more it's more or less continuous um if you know where to look there's seemingly an unending stream of like really shitty people um yeah drives me up the fucking wall um yeah be very brief about that but um yeah even the methodologies with like to bring it to something that people uh perhaps know a little bit better um because it's closer to their day-to-day -day thing, like finding a way to penetrate people with that information and, and privileging that part, like not because this is the other thing of when you run into people who privilege being right over being effective. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't do us any good to be, to merely be correct. It's good to be correct. And you should want to be uh, correct about things, especially something like, revolutionary matters which can be anywhere as big as overthrowing capitalism or as small as ejecting us uh, ejecting abusers restoring victims and rehabilitate inevitably rehabilitating uh uh the perpetrators um but on some level 
this is like you have to have the kind of that weird mingling of coldness and warmth the coldness of being yeah. mechanically minded of like it needs to be effective it doesn't do us any good to merely be correct because lots of great people have been marched to the gallows correct as all hell and executed anyway like that doesn't ultimately that doesn't do us much good to merely be correct but you also have to have like the kind of human warmth because no one no one listens to someone that's cold no one's moved by that um like this is people didn't necessarily take note didn't take the right notes rather of like when george w bush got elected twice fucking somehow despite being like <laughs> somewhere between evil and uh, uh he's he's less dumb than people make him out to be i think a lot of that was more not that he's like some super genius but i think a lot of it was like playing up a character that was politically efficacious for sure. Um, he, I think is, he's very shrewd. Yeah. Um, because he did ultimately come from the Bush family, and they're um they're not good people, but they are shrewd people. <laughs> um, you don't have that much political power over that big of a span of time without some amount of awareness of how to manipulate political yeah. landscape in your favor. Um, but the big thing of like, well, I'd have a beer with him, and that being like actual pivotal thing for people, and we. A lot of people read this in they read this in bad faith because they don't like Republican ideology, which is functionally fascist ideology. It's fair on a huge, huge level, obviously. But they also refuse to learn the lesson of what was being communicated is I feel like I have a human connection with this person. And the function of those human connections is you feel like you can communicate with these people. You feel like I understand what he's saying and he understands what I'm saying and I know what he's feeling and he knows what I'm feeling. Um, even if they don't, uh, they don't care and they're manipulating you. Um, like that, the, the reality of that doesn't matter as much as like feeling. I mean, we can speak to this interpersonal relationships. Like it feels like is listening to you earnestly is actually like witnessing you as a person is communicating with you as a person not you as a set of ideas or something like that you, yeah we value that we respond think, to that yeah i think it goes back to while we're like name dropping philosophers <laughs> it goes back to um immanuel kant right and who was yeah. terrible racist um by the way <laughs> and uh and a misogynist but uh i think one of the things that is like left from his ideas that is is very important is this idea of seeing people as not not just um means but also as an end to themselves um and that's something that the metal community is terrible at oh yeah and, it, and it's interesting how much of that is forged under capitalist pressures um because you have the pressure to perform and to get engagement and the myth of oh today it's harder to break out than it used to be, which is, I think it's nonsense. Um, but this idea that you got to compete for YouTube clicks and Bandcamp downloads and stuff like that, and under that framework, everything is kosher, right? And people are just um, PR points, right? They're just amplification stations for your message to get that out there. And if they, so I, for the listeners who don't know, I run Heavy Blog is Heavy. Um, a metal journalism website 
and I see it all the time. I, I, I love a lot of the people that I work with in PR and in bands, but some you see when people add you later on Facebook as a person. Right? If you gave them a good review, they'll add you. If you didn't give them a good review, they won't add you. If, if you didn't even talk about their band, they will never interact with you again. Right? Everything is seen under this lens of, can you give me a leg up? Right? Can you boost me um, in the void called the internet? Like, I get it. It's hard to scream into the void, which is what posting any kind of content on the internet feels like to me, at least. But the reason I do it is that it puts me in touch with people like you and all, all the other people who run the blog with me and people in bands. And, and that's tying it back to leftism. Like, fight the state, not just to win and not just to be right, but also to meet a community of people that support you. Right? Run a metal blog, not just to have superior taste and get to tell people what to listen to, but to find like-minded individuals who support you and who help you live a better life. Right? Do all those things, not just to be right and to feel the warm, um, embracing light of being correct in metal and in politics. Do it to you know, find those ends, find those people who are objectives onto themselves and to feel like one yourself and that that to me is the most important thing right because I, I work for tech i work for a high-tech company and israel is a very capitalist society it's very americanized so i feel that all of the people that i meet see me as a means right as a tool and when i go online or when i talk to my partner or when i meet my friends or when i chat to you or to simon or whoever i feel like i matter for myself right um, not just as, as a tool or a platform or an amplification point. And I would really, really love it if leftists made me feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and 95% of the time, they don't. They just make me feel like, you know, another person they can use to get their message of correctness out there. Yeah, it's like we, we run into in leftist texts as far back as the the pre-communist text from the 16 and 1700s um yeah. you have you have a couple of them before then obviously but you know we start seeing in the 16 and 1700s the real birth of what would inevitably become communist and socialist ideology um yeah. they even were calling it socialism by the 1700s but uh, and then obviously you have marx and engels and you have lenin and one common thing that they constantly talk about is camaraderie and it's baffling to me how a lot of people seem to really not take that seriously. That like the reason why Lenin was able to penetrate the minds and the hearts of the working class of Russia was because it was like, I'm speaking to you man to man, man to woman. I'm not trying to speak to you as a demagogue. I'm not trying to become this like, this other sort of phantasmal figure like i'm trying to like witness you as a person and speak to your real lived struggles and like commune with you in your pain and also in your passion and yeah. like that's an immensely powerful thing like that's what we when you talk about what people love about art, it's that of like psychic communion when you see what people what, how people talk about relationships that they like be they platonic or be they romantic or anywhere in between it's again that same sense of like i feel 
witnessed and embraced. And then through that, pe people also ignore the like, when you have that kind of thing, you can be you can be tough with these people sometimes. Like if you have that kind of bond with someone, I brought this up before. If you want someone to change, it isn't always effective to just come from the outside because you can burn someone out and just chase them away. And that can be helpful in a certain way because it will keep the safe that keep the place that they were in safe by ejecting them. But this can also sometimes be like firing a bullet into a crowd. Because if this person is the same person, they think the same way and they act the same way, they're just going to flee to another space. It can be helpful sometimes yeah. to have someone that they have a bond with go like the same way that I hope is a universal experience, although I'm beginning to doubt <laughs> it as I get older, of when your friends pull you aside and being like, and are like, yo, you are really fucking up right now. And if you keep acting that way, I'm going to beat the shit out of you lovingly. Yeah because I'm your friend. <laughs> like You're like, we're all going to learn together. You're going to learn to act right. I'm going to learn ways to hit you in the skull that make you act right. We're all, it's <laughs> going to be so good for everyone. Um, uh, yeah. And I think, interestingly, you know, as we, this is something that capitalism and especially late capitalism really fucking wants to undo. Yeah. I, it's not good for this system that we talk amongst ourselves, right? that we form these bonds and tying it all back to Deleuze, these bonds which are rhizomatic and they're not a hierarchy, right? that all your friends keep each other in check and there's not a leader that tells them what to do. Right? That it's, it's, a, it's a communal and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not codependent, that has like a negative context, yeah. right? but like a mutual um, care for each other. And I think it's, it's actually really interesting um, as a concept in, in the book that I wanted to talk about today um, in, in Jeff Vandermeer's Dead Astronauts and in general in this movement called The New Weird. Um, I don't know how popular this term is right now, but it's like a movement of writing inside of science fiction that has been um, taking shape in the last decade um, with others in it like Elvia Wilk, um, Jeff Vandermeer, who is one of the most um, vocal proponents of it, and, and others, um, and this idea of re-exploring weirdness, but also re-exploring human connection, and how how inside of late capitalism we can you know we can find the things that bind us together, and and find the ways in which we are similar, separate but similar. Um, yeah. So. That brings up a good point. Let's break for some music, and then after after the music, we'll go into the books. Because obviously, um, in, <laughs> in a series of uh, really excellent uh, manners in which I've been hosting this episode alone for for uh, the first time, I uh, uh, neglected to <laughs> I neglected to actually introduce Eden, who <laughs> be like, oh yeah, no, he has he has a degree in philosophy and history. He's an actor, leftist, yeah, and the editor in chief of a uh, really really good metal website, one that I like quite a lot. I'm just not going to bring that up. They'll, they'll put it together. Um, and it's like, hey, isn't this about books? And didn't you invite him on to talk about a book? They're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't need to mention that. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, so, so uh, yeah, everyone, uh, meet, meet, meet Eden now, uh, you know, hey. now we're in. Um, so uh, for the first song, 
this one, normally, obviously, we, we do stuff that's, like, brand new, that's, like, out within the past, like, couple of days or so. But yeah. since we've been on hiatus, there's a bit of a backlog, uh, which is uh, my excuse for uh, playing Bedsore. Um Fuck yeah. Yeah, I... Like, every... Um, <laughs> I, I've seen people run uh, describe Bedsore as uh, Metal Blog Core, um, which <laughs> is both true and unfair, because they deserve better than that. They deserve, like, <laughs> more... Um, they... For anyone who hasn't heard the Dead Sore record yet, one, immediately do it. It's it's out right now. I'm going to play a song, but you're better served just going and getting a record. It's fucking great. Um, they're a psychedelic death metal band that uh, lives in the same world as, um, like, Necrovation, as Morbus Crone, as, um, like, mid-period tribulation, like, uh, yeah. specifically around formulas, uh, formulas of death. Um it's a wildly fucking good album. Just like, um, I was talking with a friend about it. For those who maybe heard Morbus Crone or like the the Sweven debut and weren't blown away by it, one, you're wrong. And when you die, you will go to hell. And it will be good <laughs> that you're in hell because that's where people like you deserve to be. Um, but if your complaint about that was that it was a bit too a bit too samey, like the tempos lived in the same. Called the textures lived in the same world. Bedsore seems like a response to that, where their psychedelic sections swim out and have a sense of freedom and spaciousness uh, to them, so that when they come back into the death metal parts, it feels like you're hearing really gross, like Finnish death metal and stuff like that. And then it will, you know, they'll have these middle, like proggy bits where they they sit somewhere between the two. They do a really good job delineating those sections so that obviously it flows, you know, one into the next, but you don't necessarily feel like it's one big single vibe, uh, yep. which I I very much liked the sense of, of unity across the Sweven record, like the feeling that it wasn't nine or ten. I, I forget how many songs it was on paper, because whenever I put it on, it's just the entirety of the Eternal Resonance, because it feels like one big one piece 60 yeah. minute prog thing bed sort of feels different from that they feel like no we have you know we have discrete sections within our songs each song is its own little experience different flavors still fucking great um gonna play uh, i think i will play brains on the tarmac also all of these titles are great um yeah <laughs> I love um, cauliflower growth. Right? <laughs> I was like, track. <laughs> like it had, and it, in fact, fuck it. I'm going to play cauliflower growth because that yeah. also has the same kind of, since we're going to lead into uh, dead astronauts that, that gives a similar kind of like new weird vibe, which they definitely are very obviously pulling from. They have a track called out the mountains of madness, which you can't reference Lovecraft like that and not, they know yeah. what they're doing. All right.
All right, so let's go into uh, dead astronauts. So All right, so that yeah, so that was bed sore with uh, cauliflower growth. Um, the record is hypnagogic hallucinations. It's out now. Um, just buy it right away. Just just go get it. Just buy it. Um, that's your commandment for for the day. Uh, and now we're gonna talk about uh, Jeff Vandermeer's dead astronauts. So let's start by maybe talking about Jeff Vandermeer <laughs> first. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Look, you know how I feel about introducing people. <laughs> <laughs> it's unnecessary and uncool. Um, so Jeff Vandermeer is a really interesting guy. I mean, two years ago, if I had said the name, I think very few people would have known who I was talking to about. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't obscure, but he didn't enjoy the. Uh, popularity that he does today and and parts of it is because of the Alex Garland movie based on his um annihilation which mm -hmm. has a very um tenuous connection to the actual plot of the book uh, but it had some really big names on it like Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac and for what it's worth I think it's a good book um but Vandermeer has been writing for a long time now and he's um been at the forefront of this movement called the new weird. So he's American, and more importantly, he's from Florida. I um, mean, he's very much influenced by Florida's um, ecology in the sense that it's doomed, um, yeah. and it is actively dying um, day by day. So there's this idea in the core, the imperial core, that climate change hasn't started yet. Um, well, in, in effect, if you go to these places like Florida and other places around the planet, you can very much see that climate change has begun. Um, and whole swaths of the wetlands in Florida are just disappearing. Um, not to mention yeah. the fact that the, like 80% of the state will be underwater. Um, it's, it's a common thing in, uh, in zoos within America, uh, because of course, one of the few places in America where you could get accurate information about some of the stuff would be a fucking zoo. There's no yeah. knock to zoos, obviously, <laughs> like zoos, um, but it's more, uh, every other institution that can and should be sharing this information that you'll have ha like the habitat of an animal that is from like the Mississippi Delta or from Florida. And there will be maps of like, here's, uh, even going back to 1990, the amount of land loss um, in the Mississippi Delta or within the bayous of Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama or within the wetlands of Florida, they're like, here's what's happened within 30 years. And here's what, even if we continue just at this pace, yeah. and it's not going to be that pace, it's accelerating. Uh, here's where it will be in 30 more. And it, it's, again, literally like what you said 
most of the states gone. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the estimates of number of like species that would be driven extinct, uh, or at the very best critically endangered, which is more Pretty or less functionally thing. extinct. Yeah. 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 So he, he works within that nightmare, right? And his, um, literature, uh, speaks to it often, um, in, in another of his series, the Ambergris series, um, mushroom and fungi play a major role and the damp, um, this idea of being taken over by some sort of mycelial life form is like a central piece of, of his writing in that series. Um, and re- so he did the Southern reach in the middle, that's annihilation and its sequels. And now he's working on the born universe named after not exactly the first novel, but maybe the first novel treatment of the setting called born with an E, um, which tells about a city that was decimated by some sort of combination, climate change, and resulting military conflict, and is home to the company, which is a biotech corporation um, performing experiments on hybridity and modifying you know, genetical makeup of animals. And it's fucking terrible. Like, they are horrible, amoral um, people. So, a corporation, basically. Um, and they, they torture their subjects, and they, they use them for nefarious purposes to cling to power in this destroyed landscape. And in Dead Astronauts, we meet um, three characters, each of them an astronaut in a different way. Um, there's Moss, who is... Um, gender fluid and is a creation of the company uh, which made them like moss so they can extend their awareness across different versions of reality like moss um, might going back to Deleuze right and rhizomatic structures and they can experience reality as this complex um, palimpsest sort of structure there's Chen who was an employee of the company and was actually um, in charge of some of these hybrids and disposing of them as biological waste. And his thing is that he can discombobulate into salamanders, like thousands of salamanders, and then reform uh, parts of his body. And Grayson, who is the only one of them who is a literal astronaut, and she is the... um, um, the common trope of an astronaut that went too far. She went so far into space and all of her team died that she kind of saw the pointlessness of reality and brought it back to, to the destroyed planet, to Earth. And these three, um, they're trying to take on the company. Right? They're trying to destroy the company. And as they do, they fail countless times and they jump between versions and, and um, dimensions. Confused? Uh, you should be. <laughs> um, Dead Astronauts is postmodernist and experimental in its structure. It's nonlinear. The chronology of all these versions kind of blend together. At some point in the margins, Jeff starts to use version numbers. So like 6.2, 6.3, 5.7. And they contradict each other and they run into each other. Um, and maybe the, the last thing you need to know which is where I'll stop describing the plot because we'll go into spoilers, <laughs> um, is that there are a lot of non-human voices in Jeff's writing. 
whether in Ambergris, where there's a lot of, as I said, like fungal voices and fungal characters, or in the Southern Reach, where an entire wetland becomes sentient, and, or in Dead Astronauts or the Born Universe in general, where we get a lot of the story from some of the creatures that the company has created. So, for example, the Leviathan, which is sort of like a whale creature that lurks at the bottom of the pools where some of these hybrids are maintained, it's a character and it starts in its um, perceptions. There's a fox, a blue fox, who also jumps between realities. Um, he is a character. And what Jeff does really, really well, and the whole point, I think, of the book is to confront the non-human right, and think the unthinkable. Right? I don't know if, if you, Langdon, or the listeners have ever had the experience of trying to think like a dog, like looking at a dog or, or a cat and saying, I wonder how they perceive time or like how they perceive want. Well, when they're hungry, do they feel hunger like I do? And the reality of those questions is that they don't have answers, right? Like the f- what makes us humans and them a dog is that those questions are unanswerable, right? Because they have a completely different perspective on reality. So I think Jeff, through the postmodernism and through the experimental nature of his writing, really gets that um, barrier of understanding across. But also going back to what we said about camaraderie, talks about the importance of empathy, love, understanding to kind of bridge those gaps and allow the human to, if not understand the non-human, then, you know, leave it its spot in the sunshine, right? See it as an end and not just a means. So that's kind of like the overview of, of dead astronauts. Yeah, that I've I've heard nothing but good things about that book. Um, it it seems very much like it lives within that, uh, like what you were saying within the broader. Uh, trying to figure out how to phrase this. So obviously, Jeff Vandermeer actually has a couple different shared universes for his work. He has the one yeah. that he started. I don't think actually he started it in Shriek, but I think Shriek was the first like major work published within this like. Yeah, there was. A short story collection before Shriek. Ah, um, yeah. yeah, I was like, I remember something, but I don't remember exactly what. Um, <laughs> then he has uh, uh, the Southern Reach trilogy, um, which to my knowledge, I think he just refers to as the Southern Reach because he has uh, like undefined plans to extend it later, which for anyone who's read it makes perfect sense. It's yeah, open-ended enough that, that you could absolutely get away with extensions. Um, and then obviously he has he has this born world that he's started. And also he's since announced that he's gonna be starting a young adult um set of books. Uh which hearing his voice in a young adult setting seems very intriguing to me. I'm not I'm not normally terribly big on young adult uh literature. Not as <laughs> like not as an inherent knock. I don't think it's incapable of producing interesting stuff, because like who doesn't like his dark materials just Yeah. Acknowledging at a certain point that it's like, I doubt this will satisfy me. And given that it's aimed at people between the ages of 11 and 16, I don't think it needs to. Like, yeah. I am in my 30s. Like <laughs> That classic thing of other people exist and they're allowed to have books too. Um, yep. But I, I bring this up because despite the fact that Vandermeer obviously has these multiple different shared worlds, he very much is... Um, 
a writer in the mold of of Philip K. Dick or of Borges or of Lovecraft. Not the racist shit about Lovecraft. Just just saying that <laughs> immediately. Like yeah. um, we've 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 beaten that that horse to death here, and the whole like, can you be influenced by Lovecraft without becoming just a virulent white supremacist? We've that that one's been covered. There are other places to look at for that one, but. Jeff Andermere is very vocally not a white supremacist, to put it to put it oh, bluntly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he fucking hates those people. Um, but in the same mold of those writers, despite the fact that, say, the three stigmata of uh, Palmer Eldritch, is that? Yeah. Um, yep. And Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and, you know, any number of different Philip K. Dick books, even though the they aren't set in the same world, they clearly emerge from the same mind and they have an interconnective right. interconnect or intertextualism that sometimes is explicit and sometimes is merely just like he's clearly riffing on one idea from here one idea from here and one idea from here and this book is what if i take those three little germs from other works of mine and yeah. put them next to each other and see what they do i mean philip um, philip uh, took that to a almost obsessive length right yeah well, Every single novel has to have the homeopape um, and the the flying car or the rocket car. Like he had technologies that were shared between his books. Yeah, the the only person that I can think took it further in a way that was in a way that was productive um, would be Robert Heinlein, who yeah. we we mentioned before. He had the the most uh, absurd face turn in all of in all of science <laughs> fiction where he was a literal fascist early in his career like literal like yeah. arguing explicitly for like um a militaristic uh, dictatorship yep uh, and then by the end had become like he wasn't quite like full on feminist anti racist um but he definitely he had more than 0% of that in him um, and especially by the end, they're making the very strange interconnective novels that were um, seemed explicitly to make his work be in dialogue with itself. Um, and then obviously you have the least productive version, which is Isaac Asimov basically spending <laughs> the last half of his career writing interquals, connecting series that yeah. don't benefit from being connected. It's like... No one asked for this, Isaac. It's like, hey, what if the iRobot books and the foundation books are the the same be like i mean i guess but what would be gained from that and he's like nothing nothing at all i'm doing <laughs> it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, i mean yeah i'm gonna make i'm gonna make two masterpiece uh trilogies perhaps two of the best trilogies the genre will ever see and then i'm going to <laughs> connect them in a way that makes you hate time. them <laughs> um, yeah i mean that, i definitely agree that that jeff has this like bleed over yeah right, between his series um and I, I think it's interesting to see which element he chooses to emphasize in which series right because southern reach is very focused on again the, the lovecraftian idea of size as whole right like when you're afraid of something it feels like being in the presence of something so big you can't even conceptualize it um and then with Ambergris, it's more about the small things and how small creatures can insidiously infiltrate others. And with Born, I think the emphasis is on 
sadness and hope in the face of sadness. Right? Like, how do you keep fighting a fight which is pointless? Yeah, and they they all there is. It's hard not to see um, in uh, so of of the Born books. The only one that I've that I've read is Born, and then the novella that came out. Um, yeah, Strange Bird. Yeah, which especially those being in the wake of the Southern Reach trilogy, um, and sort of the well noted element of the Southern Reach trilogy that. It's my understanding Jeffrey Andermere does not like this comparison, but he shouldn't have written the book in this manner if he did not want this comparison. But <laughs> the Southern Reach trilogy reads very much like a modern Floridian rewrite of The Color Out of Space. Yeah. Like it very much is nearly all the same movements of this ineffable shimmering color, which then mutates. Uh, I mean, obviously that that's reductive. He puts other things in there. One, the passage of time between the original draft of Color Out of Space and Jeff Vandermeer's books, quite <laughs> quite big, um, throws in certain concerns about the military industrial complex. And it's not just, it's sociopathic systemic incapability of grappling with something like climate change or, um, you know, I, so he puts in these other concerns that Lovecraft would absolutely not have had, but there's still yeah. that, um, the driving force behind behind both of it is this uh so it's a lingering element that's sort of become more and more present in philosophical space and there's a non-zero chance that Vandermeer knows about this stuff um of the non-human turn is is what it's been called um, oh I, I mean he explicitly um reads and communicates with timothy morton <laughs> That's, um, that's 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 pretty on the nose, yeah. Yeah, and has re has referenced the idea of the hyper object um, in the yeah. past. So, yeah. So, um, for for people uh, not aware at home, Timothy Morton is a slightly contentious philosophical figure. He he sometimes oh, extends yeah. his ideas into wonky unusable territory is the polite way to put it but he has a lot of really interesting germs of ideas and in yeah. in the world of philosophy which is a world of thought very much like the world of fiction it's it's unsurprising that um this is uh, the big secret for why i like both for i i assume eden likes both uh for i know gareth likes both is that um they both operate in that same they're more notional um Fuck it, let's get Hegelian. Um, uh, <laughs> both the world of philosophy and the world of fiction are about dialectically elaborating on the notion, like capital N, where it's some little idea or some little lens. And each work is less about the specific work itself. I mean, obviously there is that, and there's certain fruits that are gained from that. But it's it's more the process of every time I iterate this, it changes a little bit. And every time a different person iterates it, they bring something slightly different to it. And if we do this enough times, maybe it's one time, maybe it's 10 times, maybe it's a million times, we start getting a better and better idea of what this thing is. Like we, we see that a lot within, you know, genres of music where you start delineating like, okay, here's, you know, here's what death metal is. but then the notion gets murky enough that you then need to ground it in some specifying context, which then, yeah. you know, gives you your, your 
your uh, melodic death metal, your 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 Swedish death metal, your like weird proggy Florida death metal, all that kind of stuff. Um, Timothy Morton is um, interesting and liked in the modern philosophical world precisely because his notions of like dark ecology and hyper objects and um, he has a book called Ecology Without Nature, which uh, was like pretty big for me. Um, the whole point of it is less are his extensions of his ideas in his book super useful and super uh, profound and more is the general notion that he's presenting and just the thought experiment that he's presenting. Does this feel fruitful? And it's the same kind of one that, that Eden was saying earlier of like trying to think like, how would a dog perceive time? Uh, but you can extend this further into like, what is human life to stone? Yeah. Like, let's assume stone as consciousness. What would its birth be? When would its death be? Just answering these basic questions. And then from there, like, what would a human life be when any, like, the weirdness of any given rock you can just find on the side of the road um, or, like, you know, just sitting in your yard is, like, tens of millions of years old. And, like, it's like, what you mean the shitty rocks that I use to fill my garden <laughs> because I don't, I don't want to have to. It's like, yeah, those are millions of years old. You're like, yeah. what the fuck? <laughs> like, um, and I, I think the the duality here, and, and that's something that Vandermeer does really well in his books as well, is the duality between, yeah, they're like millions of years old and they're shitty. <laughs> they're like, they're nothing special. It's not like this, because for a human, let's go back to the Arthurian mythos that we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. If something is old, it's enchanted and powerful and magical and has like force and ability to act on reality. But no, it's just a fucking piece of stone. And yeah, it's been around for tens of millions of years and, and it's nothing. It's just a, just a piece of stone. And yet, it is special and interesting and challenging and weird, right? So that duality, that's weird. That's weirdness, right? And well, I don't want to sprawl too much, but it's like the <laughs> idea of, of the, the unheimlich, right? Um, like Freud's idea of the homely strange. Something that is completely different to you is not really weird because it's alien and it's other. And something which is inherently you is not weird because it's, it's familiar. But something which is both familiar and strange that is weird, right? That is the uncanny. Something that is subtly different and yet familiar. So think about that stone. You hold it in your hand. It's really familiar and you just picked it up and it's totally within your perception. And it also stretches back potentially to when dinosaurs walked the earth. Yeah, I mean, it hits at one of the most fundamental um, critiques of certain elements of Lovecraftian work, which is if you... Talk to me of the utter incomprehensible. It won't affect me because definitionally I can't comprehend it. Like if it's yeah. fully incomprehensible, no element of it breaches into my sense of understanding. This isn't terrifying because we can't touch it. The or we can't touch it mentally. Um, the general notion of it can be frightening, but that's because we have we're comparing it to the mental model of knowable object versus unknowable object. So that's more the meta structure of that thought is generating a sort of existential uh, slip slippage in uh, Frisian. But the idea itself is definitionally like 
like untouchable. In fact, it's that weird meta structure. No one's really scared of of death itself. We're scared of notions of death. We're scared of not knowing what the experience is. But the experience itself, by being definitionally completely unknowable, that's not what produces fear. It's sort of like the event horizon around a black hole can be witnessed, but the black hole itself can't be. Similarly with these kinds of things. Yep. Meanwhile, the thing that's powerful about weird fiction in general, and um, and then Vandermeer in specific, and obviously from what you're saying, like dead astronauts more in specific, is that sense of ungrounding. Like one of the ways that the uncanny works is by taking something that we believe we know, revealing some element of it that is not only inexplicable, but threatens to undo more understanding. Like it's, uh, yeah. and that taps into a lot why weird fiction and Vandermeer in specific use the metaphor of things like moss or bacterial growth or infection or mutation yeah. because it's this thought that or cancer is, is another big one that shows up in in weird fiction and that he used to like very good effect in the southern reach trilogy um this thought of this is this threatens to mutate everything around it in this accelerating manner that will like like the fundamental question in the southern reach trilogy of like once this when when you realize at a certain point in the book, and this is a spoiler, but the book's been out for six years and you should have all read it by now. Um, it's universally <laughs> beloved. Um, you find out things like the pig with the human head was one of the people from the first expedition that went in. Yeah. That the person who came back wasn't. That was a, like a moss clone made by the color. Um, Meanwhile, the weird pig with a human face was that person. Like the weird whale with a million eyes in the ocean. I forget whether that's supposed to be the lighthouse keeper or um, the first. That's the, um, no, that, that's the actual alien that is doing all that stuff. Oh. The lighthouse okay. becomes like a snail-like crawler sort of thing. Ah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the one who makes the, uh, the tower, which is actually like a pit. Um, and it's yeah. this weird, like, goo man. Um, that the question of the... It eventually dawns on the characters by the end of it that these still those people. It's not just the the whole, like, very tedious... So No one in the world of philosophy likes the Theseus' Theseus's ship paradox because it's actually, like, tremendously easy to solve. Um, <laughs> and then becomes, like, very uninteresting. Um, the solution is obviously like identity is a fluid object. There is no static objective identity. Uh, and once you play with static objective identity, the whole notion of like, if I swap it part by part, it's like, well, it's, it remains a continuity of being that is unbroken. So yes, it's the same ship. And it's like, well, what if I yeah. build the same, what if I build a new ship with all the replaced parts? It's like, then you have two of them and they're different, but they have a branching point. Yeah, this it's one of those things that, like, if, if a child intuitively understands it, then there probably isn't a real philosophical problem at the base of it. 
And so like, like one of one of the, the things that drives that epiphany at the end of the Southern Reach trilogy, which it seems like he, he carries over or not carries over, it seems like he goes, well, that's the next step of this problem is if these are the same people, how now do I grasp their new reality in the same way yeah. that like the weirdness of like you can have a very mundane uncanny encounter like that of meeting someone when they're an infant and then not seeing them for 20 years for 30 years and then seeing them as an adult and the only image you have is of and like you know obviously babies grow into children who grow into young adults who grow into adults like that's not mysterious but for anyone who's had that happen it's there's still that weirdness where you're like i remember changing your diaper and you have like a full-ass beard <laughs> like what um so only I, I, only I extended a, yeah go ahead only extended now into deeper and deeper questions and like obviously the main thrust that is of interest to to vandermeer like the, the guts of it are of his work in general like this was true of the ambergris stuff this was true of the southern reach stuff and of the bits of born that i've read and from what you said given the uh the focus in dead astronauts of destroying uh uh was it the company? I forget what it's the called. Company. Yeah, yeah, okay, the company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Destroying the company. His, his main focuses are on like fascism and ecology and the, the human life within that. Like, you know, we yeah. witness, we witness this abnegating force within nature. And obviously it's one vastly accelerated by humanity to the point where it, th there's no, there's no real way to guess what like a naturally driven changing climate would look like because we only started collecting the data after we had vastly accelerated this process. So that's an unknowable world to us. All we know yeah. is human-made climate death. Um, unfortunately, we do sometimes rhetorically subtract humanity from the wheel of nature when talking about it we are still a natural force we're just a a wildly self-destructive one um yeah. but that we have that plus the experience of fascism which see which both generates this problem but is also blind to it in certain ways where obviously uh you see the beginnings of it in born and from your description, obviously, it seems like it's accelerated within dead astronauts of the company um, responding to the climate destruction with the very standard stuff that we've seen rumblings of through Donald Trump wanting a wall, which is, you can say it's for anything you want. It seems pretty clear it's to keep out climate refugees. Yeah. That like, so think... oh, the southern areas are going to become more inhabitable uh, before America. Keep them the fuck out. So I think, so you said a lot there, and I agree with all yeah. you said. And I think it's, it's really fruitful because, so I think Dead Astronauts is Jeff Vandermeer actually trying to step to the side of, of these questions and find a way to get around them, right? So what he's saying is mm. the climate is dying, right? And, and it's probably, it's done. We're not in the 80s anymore. There is nothing to be done. Um, we've lost. So now the question is, what do you do? Like, how do you get up in the morning? How do, you, how do you keep relationships when you know for a fact that they are pointless, right? That um, 
sure, individuals will might prosper, and even individual countries might prosper in the in the next fifty to sixty years. But there is also the really big chance that you won't, that you never will, that you will either die or be relegated to a nomadic lifestyle or live in a refugee camp or stuff like that. So how do you how do you go on? How do you keep forming relationships with others? And that, that's what the dead astronauts are trying to do, right? Like they know they they can't actually destroy the company. They say that blatantly in the story. Um but they keep trying. So okay, that's that's a banal message, right? Like you keep you keep doing what you do. But what Vandermeer does really well in the story is you don't you you're not doing it just to say you were correct, right? Just to say that you were on the right side of history, going back to our discussion of leftism, right? You do it because you love the people that you do it with. They actively love each other, um, Grayson and Moss and Chen. And actually, it's the best part of the book is how touching their relationships are, which I think was missing a bit from the Southern Reach. You have the central relationship yeah. between the biologist and her husband, but it's a very cold one and an estranged one. Same thing in Ambergris where, um, I don't remember her name, but the narrator of Shriek, she hates or love hates her brother, Duncan, right? Um, they don't have a good relationship. Well, here, the, the, the point of Igress is that they love each other and that the relationship is doing well, right? Or go back to Bourne, which it centers an inherently dysfunctional relationship between the two characters. So this is Vandermeer trying to ask, okay, cool, like the planet is done, this is all wreckage waiting to happen, what next? But then also the second thing, um, which you mentioned, fascism and all that stuff, one of the things that Vandermeer does really well in these books is he shows how, like you said, ideas or tools depend on who is using them. And he shows how the company weaponizes the weird, right? Yeah. Which is hot take time is what Trump is doing right now. Mm -hmm. Like if you think about the unnamed agents operating in Portland and the tactics that they use, those are weird tactics. There are people without a name, without a face, without a presence that appear from out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere, in this case, the mysterious courthouse, right? No one goes in, no one goes out. All, the only people who go in are their prisoners, right? Um, and yet, they can act on reality. And yet, they can grab you and put you in a truck and disappear you. So they are inherently weird. And in Dead Astronauts, um, the, the character that most embodies this is a duck. Um, there's a duck with a broken wing and for some reason and something that is not named explicitly for horror purposes it somehow destroys or eviscerates its opponents and actually attempts at bringing down the company if you meet the duck early on you know you're fucked like he's gonna take down the astronauts and they're gonna fail horribly in this attempt the company is no stranger to weirdness right to hybridity to fluidity this idea that, that weirdness is inherently rebellious or a part of resistance or that it erodes power is something that Vandermeer actually takes to tax here. Right? He challenges that perception, says, uh-uh, fascism and capitalism and all those people, they're just as um, competent at deploying the weird as a weapon as you guys are. Right? What makes us different from them is that we use the weird 
to love the unlovable, right? to love the distant, to love the non-human, to love the incomprehensible. While the capitalist and the fascist and the company and, and all that stuff, they use weird to destroy, to erase, to destabilize. So it's, it's a very interesting idea that, as you said, it runs through some of his other books. Um, but I think that Astronauts is, I think it's his best novel, um, partly because it does the best job at exploring these more non-dichotomic um, ideas of, of weirdness. Yeah, that sounds that sounds probably like the best uh, sales pitch for it that I've gotten. <laughs> like I, I had the problem of so I I I was slow on picking up the Southern Reach trilogy, despite having read um I read um Shriek and Finch like a while ago, like yeah. like shortly after each of them came out, um, and then Southern Reach trilogy books were coming out and I just wasn't in that kind of headspace, I guess. Like I just no knock on them, just didn't really get them. And then, you know, waited until that, you know, the really nice hardcover uh edition of it came out with all three books. And it was like, okay, that it's the right price. It looks very pretty. It will look good on my shelf. And these books yeah. are apparently great. So okay, I'm gonna bite. Um and this was right before Born came out. Uh like not immediately, but pretty pretty damn close so i basically read the three of them shortly after that born comes out read that shortly after born came out is when he dropped uh the novella and so i basically read five books by him you know back to back and then it was like okay uh dead astronauts is coming out and i was like i need a break um (laughs) yeah especially because at least my i i remember him pitching dead astronauts as kind of like not like very specifically not a sequel to born it lives within the same world but it's not yeah, it's he not was like he was like i want to explore some other ideas this is like an, an experiment and some you know like critical thoughts about even my own creation that i had kicking around that i wanted to narrativize and i was like that sounds neat i'm not a now if i had known <laughs> based on what you said um so i i, I really don't want to spoil it so the actual sales pitch is about a part of the book that I haven't even talked about. Like mm. the best part of the book, I haven't even raised. And again, without going into spoilers, because the, the point is the surprise and the impact of that surprise. Um, I'll just say that it's the chapter that is told from the perspective of the fox. So the fox makes an appearance in Bourne as well. But in Dead Astronauts, the fox gets its own chapter, and that's the real sales pitch. Well, I consider myself sold now, um, because yeah. uh, the <laughs> the, uh, for, for anyone who's, who's read Bourne, obviously, that, that's a very intriguing notion that you finally get the sum. Uh, but I know what Vandermeer does in general with surprises like he, he's a very he's a very efficacious writer when it comes to twists where they don't yep it, it can feel so this is more talking with with my writer cap on twists are tricky because you can the two bad ways you can make them is one is the completely unexpected twist that um doesn't 
just feels like the writer like ran out of ideas and so they needed to go in a new direction which is like okay that um those can sometimes be useful but as a writer you have to work very hard to disguise that that's what happened um because if anyone catches on to it they're like bro what the fuck <laughs> like why did you just cut before this like what what's your deal um and the other bad one which is the tempting uh like intermediate writer response is to make a twist that's so heavily like foreshadowed and grounded that it basically loses all of its power um yeah and that's like it feel that's where you get the people who are uh the standard very childish fixation on like i like hard magic systems where everything's you know logically consistent and yada yada where it's like yeah but what's the fucking point like um yeah and so i can, I, I can play i can play D with my friends i don't need to read a book for it right yeah. And meanwhile, he, uh, it, it, whenever he's had a twist in previous books, he's very good about there's enough where it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like he's doing this because he's just run out of steam and he needs to re-energize himself to get a draft to an editor. Um, but it also doesn't. It almost never is something that I would have expected prior to getting to it. And it almost yeah. like it never has gone direction i would have anticipated um so i'm very excited by the notion that there is something like that lurking in dead astronauts buckle up that's all i'll say <laughs> it, it was See, literally so again i i, I i'm gonna keep dancing on the point but <laughs> i don't know if you've had the chance to read well i'm sure you have maybe listeners haven't to read a book that hates you yes. um and that it's a very unique experience. It's not a pleasant one, but it's very powerful. And I think that part, the Blue Fox um, narrative, actively hates you. And it's, it's Vandermeer, in a sense, actively hating his own writing and the way in which, in a way, and Jeff, if you ever listen to this, I'm sorry if I'm like wildly off the mark, but in a way that his writing is profiting off of climate change right because obviously he is very pro conservation and he's very vocal about climate change and he thinks that you know the green new deal is not enough and we need to do more and ev all of that is true and yet he writes books about climate change and he makes money off of it and he makes fame off, off of it and i wouldn't dream to critique him about that but he maybe is critiquing himself through that narrative of, of the Blue Fox, which is fascinating. Yeah, that, that, sounds, uh, that sounds way more enticing than... Okay, let me, let me readjust my phrasing. Everything about what I'd heard about Dead Astronauts already sounded whip-ass, so like, uh, when I say way <laughs> more enticing, I mean I, above that. Because obviously a dude who can turn into a, a massive sal... I mean, anyone who's seen my posts online knows that I am, I like the weird. Yeah. Um, a capital W there. Like, uh, that, uh, I'm, I don't exactly hide it. Um, uh, and so, you know, obviously the, the book seemed interesting on that end, but also there's, what a beautiful problem we have in 2020 that like when it comes to weird art, again, you know, like capital W, like weird fiction, um, we are not hurting anymore. Like there is long stretches where, you know, it's hard to find 
decent weird art like you could find people who were making it but you know when it came to something where you were like this is actually pretty good um we now no longer are fallow it helps that the world's yeah. falling into uh fascism and climate death and uh a lot of the weird is uh generated by the dreamlike contusions of a broken mind attempting to make sense of a world that deliberately hatefully refuses to make sense you know one of the very uh incredibly frail silver linings on a you know progressively blacker cloud um, yep. but yeah especially the, the the writer in me gets very intrigued by the notion of him doing those little like yeah brainy it's a very, swirls it's a very self-referential sort of book like a writer's a writer's book in a sense <laughs> shriek already was right oh, because yeah. it, it's actively a person writing an afterword to a book which is not an afterword at all um but it has a lot to say about the act of writing and confession and stuff like that but this one is more postmodern about it um it's a very interesting book it's it's I mean, I read Annihilation in one sitting in Paris, by the by. I just bought it there. Um, and I literally couldn't couldn't stop reading it. Um, Ronnie, my wife, went to sleep, so I moved to the to the bathroom, turned on the light, <laughs> and read it read it there because I just I couldn't stop. And yet that astronauts, which took me longer, um, I think will stick with me for longer as well. It's like a very insidious sort of sort of book, like creeps up on you. Um, and that's why I can't wait to read uh, a peculiar peril, which is his YA novel that he just published. It's like about animals having adventures. So <laughs> he he did say it's weird, but it's not. It won't be as weird. So I'm really excited to see how Jeff Vandermeer's version of Winnie the Pooh basically works. Uh, so that should be interesting. Like a a good place to uh to to call it um we're we're both uh running up on some on some time here yeah. uh and also that's uh i can't i can't think of anything additional to say that would be better than that <laughs> um so <laughs> one of those classic things where it's like uh when you're in the midst of writing something and you put a really good line you're like i guess i'm done because it's it's yep, only gonna I'm be done. worse now so <laughs> um yep. so for for play out music i'm gonna go with the uh the new the new Sumac single that just came out, um, the iron chair. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, said this before during, uh, the past couple of records they put out, which, um, not that Gareth didn't want to play those songs. Cause he also loves Sumac, but I was like stamping my feet going like, we're going to play Sumac. And he's like, Langdon, I already said we were, you don't need to. And I'm like, no, we need to. And he's like, I <laughs> said we were calm down. <laughs> um, uh, I just, I adore Aaron Turner in general. Like I implicitly trust any project that he's a part of. A um, little bit frustrated with the label choice for one of his projects to be very, very brief on that. But, you know, d yeah. we don't have to deal with that with Sumac. Um, Sumac's on Thrill Jockey. Nothing. Got no beef with Thrill Jockey. Uh, but. Yeah, just. Um, seeing. So for anyone unfamiliar with Sumac, um, it. Despite what Aaron Turner says, it's very clearly um, a follow-up to Isis in a way that none of his other projects really explicitly were. Like, obviously, mm -hmm. he has he has a very clear artistic voice 
Um, yeah. Any project that he's a part of is going to have the Aaron Turner vibe. You can tell when he was allowed to write riffs. Um, <laughs> but one of the critiques he had of later period ISIS, um, which I don't hold, I actually really love in the absence of truth, which is um, apparently this is wildly controversial. That's my favorite ISIS record. Um, mm. That is kind of controversial, yeah. It's like, I don't know, I hear Garden of Light or um, Dulcinea or... Uh, it's an amazing release, don't get me wrong. Right? Incredible. And that's like, uh, to be fair, it's like all of their albums are great. We get this weird... We, we see this a lot in the world of art where people seem the need to pick like one or two works by somebody. Yeah. And that's... And it's like, I don't know, all, all five of their albums are fucking great. Like, I would go to my grave happy if I could put out celestial which is easily their worst album and is still fucking great um yeah i don't know i go nuts for the band but their own critique of the period from in the absence forward is they became a lot more structured than they had been before like you can hear live mm. recordings of isis from up to uh the release of panopticon and they deliberately had a lot of improv sections in live scenarios. That's one of the reasons why they had three guitarists, two of which yeah. were capable of playing keyboard. Um, it's like, so at any given moment, we can have like different textures. We can change up this groove. You know, we're all, we, they played live so much that they formed that very necessary telekinetic bond for that kind of music where it's like someone can alter the rhythm just a little bit and everyone will pick up on it. Um, and they felt, you know, by the end, they had really interesting rhythms, really interesting sounds, really interesting structures, but it was a lot more, um, constrained. It was a lot more constructed rather than, yeah. so the whole thrust, yeah. So the whole thrust of Sumac from the deal, which was their debut forward was to get progressively freer and woolier, um, and obviously the deal comes out and it sounds again, Aaron Turner would probably balk at this, but it just is true. I think if you were to play the deal right after Wavering Radiant, you could make, you could convince someone this is the same band and this is just <laughs> their next release. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it feels like after years of him saying, yeah, I was a little uncomfortable with some of the stuff we did by the end of the band. Obviously it's a, it's a multi-person band and, you know, we all decided as a group, but if I had my own personal way, I would have tilted in a slightly different direction. That's like, okay, you were a part of that. You're allowed to go back later and explore that direction that you wanted to go, but didn't. And then, you know, they put out their next record, what one becomes, and that's, a lot freer, like a lot more freeform. It it feels a like a studio version yeah. of some of the woolier ISIS live material. And then obviously, for people who know, uh, the next thing they did was they were like, so on drums they had Nick Yakishin, who is fucking phenomenal drummer, fucking incredible. Baptist yeah, is amazing. great, and yeah, it's, yeah. um, dudes quickly rising to like like Ben Collar uh and Bill uh like Billy Reimer levels of like and like Chris Penny levels of just like everyone loves this drummer you can play on any project you want and I guarantee it'll sound great. Um and then uh they have Brian Cook from uh Russian Circles and a couple other groups like he was in Botch um like 
you know, the a small the bit, band, you know, little t- tiny <laughs> band that you might not have heard of called Botch. Um, he recorded a little record called We Came as Romans. Um, just invented so, like a genre. It's not, not a big deal. <laughs> so, like, obviously, he has like incredible players who have both like they have all the prog chops that they need, but they also have this well of other resources. Um, but even they were like, okay, we're, we're reaching a little bit of a limit for how free we can go and still have it feel like it's cohesive. So they reached out to the Japanese free improvisation and free jazz guitarist Keiji Haino, and it was mm-hmm. like, open offer. What if you band lead us for a release and we go into the studio and we do whatever you say um, just to cut our, t- like to learn from a master? And that motherfucker will play with anyone and he will record like six albums in two days. Um, <laughs> like he famously has a trio with him, Merit's bow and then a jazz drummer um, that I say a jazz drummer instead of naming them because they've actually swapped out who the drummer is a couple times for that trio stuff. Yeah. Um, but literally it'll be like, yeah, we went to the studio for one afternoon and cut three albums that then get released one, like one a year. And so and mind blowing. Yeah. And so he's like, yeah, fuck it. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so he showed up and they cut uh, a record that I, I told the story before when it came out. Famously, when I got the promo for it, the title was so long, I couldn't unzip the file. <laughs> I had to like Windows didn't allow me enough characters for the name and I couldn't rename it without unzipping it. So I had to unzip it like to my hard drive, not to Windows. Amazing. And then I had, to, I had to boot in through the BIOS and rename the files and then mm. copy them into, into Windows, which was... No, that, that's dedication. Right? He's like, <laughs> no, physical release only, motherfucker. Your computer literally won't let you have the file. Yeah. Um, but that, that record, uh, American Bill, Face Side, I, I don't... Long-ass title. Um, and then... Uh, absolutely blew the doors off of how free the band could go. And basically everything since then, um, well, they've actually only put out one studio record since then called Love and Shadow, which is fucking immaculate. I, I yeah, amazing like, album. Easily one of my favorite records of the past decade, like just fucking phenomenal. And yep. this new album is very much in that same mold. Like they, they looked at each other and they were like, no, no, we're on to something. No, we don't need to move on yet. No, we, this is this, this baby still got gas in the tank. Um, yeah. I, I've heard a lot more of the record than the, than the single. I assume Eden that maybe you have. Um, yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you actually get promos, uh, regularly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I think maybe listeners won't really appreciate this, but I know that you will. I legit like get almost no promos. So like in order to do any work, <laughs> I have to like look up something way in advance and be like, all right, they won't give me a promo. I've emailed them four times and they won't respond. Um, so then I reach out to various like editors that I know and be like, can you tell them that you want to copy that you'll send? And they're like, Langdon, no, I'll get removed from their promo. I'm like, please, I, just want it. Like, I can tell them to contact you be like, you can, but they probably won't. Um, they actually did send me one for this, though, um, which uh, made me uh, ecstatic. So, 
uh, yeah, we're going to play the Iron Chair. Um, this is basically fast tracked to be one of my albums of the year because I, I, I go nuts for this shit. Um, yeah. yeah. So here's uh, Sumac with the Iron Chair. Mm-hmm. 